Welcome, this is Coppercast, a new show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Ian Wilson, the CFO of the NEM Project. Ian grew up here in the UK, down on the South Coast, before attending university in Bath to study economics. And it was there he learned to combine science and mathematics with the wider macro outlook offered by politics and philosophy. From there, he moved to London and joined the city, which for any of our international listeners effectively means he went into banking. First as a project manager with Reuters, helping to design some of the first digital trading systems in the early 90s, and later managing significant portfolios. He brings this experience to the world of layer one protocols, and he joins us today to discuss tokenization writ large. Welcome, Ian. Uh, Hi, Tyler. Pleased to be here. Uh, in your show and tell segment, uh, which if you haven't seen, please go to the Coppercast website or see it on our, our social channels like YouTube or, or Twitter or whatever. Um, you talk about tokenizing the world uh, and the predictions for how much value uh, measured in you know world GDP or uh, just assets, tradable assets, will be moved on chain in the next sort of five to 10 years, which by all accounts, you know, in our circle seems doable. But what makes it seem likely to you? Yeah, I think, I think there's a few reasons. I mean, I think really... Fundamentally, there's underlying uh, efficiencies to be had. Um, I think there's a whole load of stuff about process, right? So is there a more, more efficient process? Does that mean we should do it? Not necessarily. But I think if you look, if you add up all the different areas where you have benefits and then you overlay um, some of the regulatory regimes on top of that, and by regulatory regimes, I mean, if you think about the moment, the interesting point with cryptocurrencies is it's sort of like, an unregulated, semi-regulated space. If you look at tokenization, it is really about digitalization. Now, you know, in all of these industries at the moment, people effectively everything's being digitalized. So if you come back to that core financial architecture and the financial systems, it's okay, they're electronic. But you know, is there a benefit from going to another stage with tokenization, digitalization? I think there is a massive benefit. And actually, from a regulator's point of view, there's a lot of regulatory benefits. Um, you know, and, and I think really a lot, we're all moving to a space where it's going to be a regulated space. Um, and I just think that's the direction of travel. Is that, so uh, you come from the, um, traditional finance background, mm. traditional banking background, investment banking. Um, when you were in that environment, these inefficiencies that exist there still today, where you look at blockchain, the potential to remove those efficiencies, is that something that drove your decision, um, to work in this space is what, what, what was your first introduction to cryptocurrencies and the the potential benefit of this technology yeah i mean look, I, I think when i first um i started working in the early 90s um and i worked for a company called reuters um so effectively they supplied digital trading systems so in terms of some of the underlying um software um and apis um I had some exposure there um, then I actually went into financial markets. And, and the thing with financial markets, in some respects, they, they were very advanced with derivatives. Um, but, you know, you overlay, overlay these really complicated derivatives and actually over, over the top of it, you've got all these underlying payment systems. Um, and then it, it was how you connect the, the virtual world with the mechanics of settlement and moving assets around. You know, and I've worked as an asset manager as well, where essentially all the assets get custody with someone else. And it... And you, you have a virtual way where you're in this spreadsheet and you're managing your risks and you're moving your portfolios around. But there's actually a mechanic of all of those assets you're moving around. There's an underlying process and operation that's going on. And actually, it's pretty inefficient. I mean, it sort of works. But then the question is, is there's so much money sloshing around. If you can make the 
process slightly more efficient. You're talking about really big numbers. Uh, and then there's just some basic stuff really with the financial crisis where actually exposed like some of the core problems with in terms of financial infrastructure. Okay, um, I guess before we, we go any further, we should um, address the NEM group and you mm. know this is where you're from. Can you, some of our listeners will be familiar with the name, but maybe not understand uh, like the structure, a bit of its history. Can you, can you give us an overview of, of what NEM, the NEM group is? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, NEM's basically a proof of stake blockchain. Um, it's one of the oldest proof of stakes. Uh, it was probably conceived about the same time or maybe just before Ethereum project. So it's very old. Um, it was probably pioneering at the time because it was proof of stake. It had things like multi-signature uh, on-chain, which was really strong because of security around your wallets. Um, so they had a first chain out, 2015. It's been up 24-7, 365 days a year. Uh, loads of people have done proof of concepts. It sort of works. You know, it's fine as a blockchain in itself. Um, so, so really the core developers... Um, took a step back, took all the learnings from that initial go at their first chain and effectively said, okay, right, how would we architecture uh, a hybrid blockchain for enterprise? Um, and that's basically what they built. It's probably taken them two and a half, three years to do. Um, and that's what Symbol's going to be. That's what Symbol is. So, yeah. so I guess the analogy is really, you know, if you've got Microsoft Office, you press the button and it upgrades your version of your software. The thing about blockchain is it's, it's, it's fundamentally keeping a state of transaction and a history. And, you know, if you build something like we've done in a different language ground up, and we've got this extra feature set, is you can't just turn off the old blockchain and have a new blockchain. So that's really what it's about. So we effectively, we've, uh, we've put all our energies into this new blockchain. So um, is it a migration or a, a replacement? Will it run alongside? Yeah, yeah, no, it's good question. Thing? Well, look, I mean, because you've had lots of projects that effectively been using it and have got data on that blockchain. So, for example, you know, you've got projects where they've um, they verified identities and certifications. So that data, the reference to the data and the, and the, and the, um, the hashes all goes back to that previous blockchain. So, you, you know, and actually from a cryptographic point of view, really what you're doing is you're... You, you're, you're actually, you've created a record, right? That record is there. And so that old blockchain is still going to go on. It's still going to be used. Um, projects are, are still going to be using it because some of the base features are great. You know, it works for your use case. Um, the reason why you've got a new blockchain is really so you can build in those primitive, we call them primitives, blockchain primitives. But they're a set of stuff that's features set that are in the core protocol, which just allow you to build better and more complex products and um, and it's more scalable as well you know because if you think about uh enterprises or big financial uh, firms you know you're talking about huge amount of transactions mm. um so the actual throughput and the architecture um, has to be able to cope with that so i guess one of the limitations in in the traditional software world is you being backwards compatible with yeah, something yeah. so i mean do you do you avoid that with symbol or like how long do you need to maintain well, um, well, I mean, I guess the question is, is like, you've, you've, what you need to say to people, I, my, my personal view of it is, um, if you've got people that use the blockchain and they've stored data, they've stored data, reference data, you know, and then you suddenly switch it off, then I think that's a problem. And I think the thing is, you don't have a central person who has an off switch. Mm. You know, the, 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 the value in that network is actually in all your nodes and the people that run the nodes. So actually, really, if you look at um, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, um, you know, that network, okay, it's been, it's been attacked. 
um, and it's been tested. But in sense of the, the, the there's no there's no there's no reason why that network won't be there in a hundred years time. If if people um, maintain the nodes on the network, the network just goes on. Um, guess, but in like a proof of stake community, it requires sufficient users staking in the in the chain, right? Yeah, I mean, and then that's where it gets interesting as well because what you find in terms of the way we've done our event, um, what we've done is is a token allocation one for one. Right. So if you're a, for example, if you're a super node holder on an existing, uh, so basically just, just for so people understand, I mean, it's the point of a proof of stake network, right? You need to have people who stake their tokens who effectively make consensus uh, on the state of the chain. So it's, it's a security. So it's the resilience of your network. Now with our allocation effective, anyone who's got the existing uh, tokens on our, our chain will be allocated one for one for the new, the new, the new uh, chain. Mm-hmm. Um, what you'll see is because it's like a uh, community network, uh, what people will do is actually they'll just carry on running the nodes. So, for example, you know, a, a node runner gets effectively his new tokens for for symbol. He'll run a symbol node, but you know, he'll still run his old node. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the reality about having it distributed. You know, you find it, it's 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 very interesting how these network and ecosystems are developing, because you you haven't got a pure financial interest. Right, because the the way the backgrounds of the people and the interests of the people, um, it's like an economic incentive. You know, it's not there's not a pure economic incentive here. They work on incentives, but people wouldn't engage, for example, in activities that you might say, okay, the marginal cost. Why are you doing that? Well, they're doing it fundamentally because they believe in uh, distributed architecture and and having that decentralization. So so yeah, I mean the 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 you know the 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 guys will run nodes on the new network. Um, you know, you probably. We've had up to about 450 nodes that are running on the existing network. The reality is you're going to have people running nodes on the old network. And the interesting point um, is when you look at use cases, what you'll find by having a low transaction cost on the old network, there might be a load of use case where you'll drive transaction and nodes because it actually suits them to do it in a low cost way. So the NEM community, I mean, we t- we've touched on uh, NEM and the moving to Symbol, um, but there's more to the community than that, right? I mean, you come, you came from the, the ventures arm of the NEM organization or project, yeah, right? Yeah. But how, does, how does that, like, what does that structure look like now? Are you, are you still investing in projects? Um, yeah, no, 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 totally. I mean, um, so, so, yeah, so just to say my, because um, my background had been some, I've done some institutional um, managing um, pension fund assets and managing money, right? So, um, so I, I was used to working in an environment where it's regulated. Um, you also have to do very strong due diligence, um, you know, that, that because obviously you're safeguarding assets, right? So, you know, you need to make sure people are going to get their pensions. Um, so because my, that was my background, I got asked to do some um, due diligence on, on some investments by the NEM Ventures guys. So that's how I first got involved in the NEM project. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think the thing is, you know, like for lots of these small projects or, or people's use cases, it's very early still, but what you do see is some really interesting ideas. How, how many projects were you involved in, in the, on the venture side? Do you, do you still follow them? Are yeah, they- still, still follow them. I mean, I find, I mean, I find, I mean, I still follow them, and it's really interesting. I, I had, for example, there's there's projects where uh, we didn't fund um, because there wasn't enough alignment because the, the venture projects uh, have to be aligned with our ecosystem. So, so you met lots of people who had really interesting ideas, but there wasn't an alignment with, you know, with our ecosystem. Um, there's guys I still met and follow now who we didn't fund, but actually we're going to end up using their service because they developed their service. So, you know, 18 months time, two years time, they've developed a product and actually the product can fit in with some of the stuff we're doing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 
that's how these ecosystems develop because they your ecosystem gets bigger because mm. people join up to your network. Um, and were, were a lot of the projects that were coming to the Ventron, were they sort of like um, applications that could be or would be built on top of on top of NEM? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most most of the ideas, um, yeah, exactly. I mean, most of the ideas were, um, you know, for, for, for example, um, uh, there's, there's a couple of good, there's a couple of interesting ones at the moment. For example, there's um, something that was co- is called uh, Track Good. So, so that was supply chain. So it's like the idea of like uh, the origin of your product, right? So you know, like for example, you know, you 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 people say this talk about sustainability. Um, but you know, how do you show to customers, consumers this, that your product's sustainable? Well, the answer is right. They're using blockchain effectively to geolocate um, the supply chain to show proof that actually, really, their product is a sustainable product. So you know, there's there's, there's a lot also interesting ones around energy, right? So because energy again is something where you know you had a situation where you had huge uh, big supplies of energy, right? But actually, the people who consume it is very decentralized. But then you've got this idea about actually. How do you incentivize people to change their behavior? Because the real answer is we've all got to use, we've got to work in a more sustainable way and change our energy use, right? So how do you incentivize that? So there's really stuff around smart metering, um, you know. So there's, I mean, lots of the ideas, you know, um, they're not necessarily excessively complicated, but but they work. They're very interesting when you look at networks and actually what you can do with them. So yeah, that, that is mm. interesting. Do you think there's a an application, a blockchain application that will be the the thing that seals the deal for everyone over the next five years that just leads to mass adoption or mass acceptance that blockchain is the way we should organize our technologies in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one thing I said in my introduction actually is is I think the problem uh, with a lot of people in the blockchain world is they just overly complicate the underlying technologies. Um, and actually really you just have to think back to the, the users. And I think really... It's if you, you know, let's just, I mean, the, the most obvious application is in the financial industry, right, for in payments for, for blockchain. Right? The, so anyone who does a, you know, a strategy paper, they come up with a load of uses, but it always starts with, with payments or, you know, or D, you know, DeFi or you know, how, how you get rid of the banks, right? So if you look at that setup, really, but the thing is for a consumer, right, as we've seen with the fintechs, is if you can, if you can just basically get, abstract away all of the complexity, and give people a really simple product with a really good UX that actually works, then that's that's the killer app, you know, re- really. And, and peop- what people need to do is to think of the blockchain as these underlying rails um, that, that are going to ultimately be hidden below a product but make, make the thing so simple to use and that customers can see the value from. Um, and, and I think, really, you're going to see that because... You know, you, you've sort of started to see that with the fintechs in banking. You know, if you go to Revolut, um, you know, I use Revolut. I mean, you know, it's it's a great product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, it delivers you value. Um, now, you can go another step further where these guys are going to link up. They're going to use crypto. Some of them actually, if you look at Warex, is a good example. Um, you know, Warex will have crypto rails uh, built with normal uh, payment rails. Mm-hmm. But really, the real value then becomes, you know, you tokenize these assets, right? And then you've got a situation where you've got a guy in Mexico and you've got a guy in the UK. They're part of the same family. They've got to move some value across. And suddenly, you have no slippage in that value that you move across, right? And it happens really quickly. That, I mean, that's, that's, really, actually, you know, that's really powerful. That's powerful. It's a popular use case as well. Yeah, um, it's, it's popular. But, but, I mean, have we really seen it yet? I mean, does it frustrate you? Or do you think that it should be more 
widespread yet by now and it, and it's not um i mean for my my perception of it is technology is not the issue the actual issue really is is the regulatory structure mm. and i think by that i mean i think really you know the, the couple of the illustrations uh, um all the projects that we're working working on are, are, are fully in the regulatory you know the regulatory umbrella um so you know for example you know cdbc right so um, the NIM project, we had the uh, Bank of Lithuania, which was a central bank. It's effectively done a, you know, it's issued LB coin. Um, this has got to be one of the first yeah, pilot was, projects of uh, a central bank digital currency. Yes, yeah, so, so certainly. And, and, I, and, I, but, and, you know, the reason why it's done that is because it wants to get the learning experience of how you work with a di digital currency actually in your economy. And, you know, you know, you trying to, you know, have these, you have sandboxes and we have all these things, but, now you don't if, if you actually go through this process you know you you find out what it's like to suddenly dump a load of technology out there your you know e-wallet digital wallet you know, how does the normal consumer interact with that um buying or moving those tokens around moving those tokens onto a public chain um what are the pain points what do you need to do better do you need the banks to basically be an interface between the consumer and the bank or can the can you go direct to mm. the uh, the users? So that that's I mean that's fully in the regulated space, but that's people have got to the regulators have to get comfortable that this technology technology one is is an improvement, it's transparent, um, and really it's not going to result in a load of value disappearing. Um, How long has the um, Lithuanian pilot been running? Um, I think they ish, I think it was in the summer. Okay, it's so the summer. Is so. it too early for like some early lessons from it? Do you get feedback from fairly well? I got regularly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've got a uh, because the the systems integrator is uh, Superhow. Um, so, so from their point of view, um, I had a. I mean, well, I, I got to be careful what I say here, but I mean, what we found is obviously, look, clearly, um, you can get a project out there, people engage with it, but whether they fully engage with all the functionality around there, mm. um, that that's the bit where you got to spend a bit of time with. I think also when you when you think of some when you think of some national uh, geographies, how people engage with technology is actually quite different. Yeah. So so for example, some some of these smaller countries are really innovative in how they look at digitalization, right? So um, whether it's like residency permits or how you form form companies, they make it very electronic. Um, so Lithuania, for example, there's there's plenty of projects where they want to digitalize. They really want to actually say, okay, what can we build? Can we do things in a different way? Um, if you come and take take back something like the UK, right, which has got a very old financial system, you know, the central bank's been there for hundreds of years. You know, you can't suddenly just chuck out the existing payment structures and the infrastructure and suddenly put a new one in. So, so actually, maybe the innovation there is going to be at a slower pace. And, you know, and you have to watch what other people do. So what we've had is a number of inquiries from other countries, um, predominantly they're the countries that are probably, um, that are more innovative in the sense of their financial system smaller. If you've got a small financial system, you can probably... It's easier to pivot. Yeah, yeah it's, it's easy. Like some of the smaller Caribbean countries are doing experiments with yeah, CDCs, no, it, some it, of the APAC countries. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that, I guess that's what we're going to see. I mean, there's, you know, it's... Um, yeah, the amount of interest in that project we've seen from reverse inquiries is mm. it's, it's been great. So, I mean, because things, because you get learning on one project, you can automatically say, okay, well, look, this is some of the things that work really well. These are some of the things a bit more friction about, and you know, you have to redesign how you do it next time. So, with those, with those guys, because um, they're on 
Nemer Niz One. What, what, it's common. Yeah, I think they use a combination of Niz One, which is old chain, but also Symbol. Uh, so Symbol, just to go back a back a step, um, Symbol's a hybrid chain. So what right. a, what a hybrid chain means is you've got the ability to ha- to have a private uh, private sector chain. Now, why would you want to have a private sector chain? Well, that because you might want to. It's all sort of mission. You might want to control the the access to the data. Mm-hmm. So you want to get some of the benefits effectively of blockchain, but you want to do it in a very controlled environment. So a good example you'd say would be uh, some of the central bank project where you, you know, might want to have that that very tight control. Obviously, the public chain, the great thing about public chain is you've got, you've got the transparency in a public environment, right? So a hybrid chain allows you effectively to have the best of both worlds. Some of the uses and the things you build are going to be in a private environment, but you might want to aggregate all the transaction and post the record back on the public chain. Um, so that that's that's how we sort of juggle stuff. So yeah, so it's a symbol effectively is an enterprise blockchain, but it's public and private. Okay, and is it the um, is symbol the part of it that enables the the private chain to interact with the public chain, and the public chain is effectively you know, NEM, what existed before we right. created. Yeah, I mean, so so what what happens? I mean, we had um, we literally had to have a brand name for for the new chain, and it's difficult because you've you've got an existing chain, it is one. Um, which was NEM Infrastructure Architecture. Um, so Symbol was the name for the new blockchain. So it's, it's more like a, it's more to distinguish mm-hmm. the fact that you have two chains. Okay. Um, That's the problem with dealing with marketing people like us. We have to name everything. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that NEM, or the, the NIS one, the first chain was known for was uh, the security of it. I mean, it was mm-hmm. never um, like breached, for instance. Uh, there was one hack of, a, of a, an exchange, mm. but that wasn't necessarily down to the protocol. Mm. Um, and you were able to, you know, track all of the funds um, using the chain. Is that is that something that ports over easily to the to the successor, to Symbol? Yeah, I mean, I think look, the, 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 the thing that was really strong in this one was having multi-sig on chain. So, um, so obviously, if you, if you look at uh, Copper, for example, you know, um, um, you guys have put a lot of effort into having a lot of security around your wallets. Um, if people are going to custody, realities, if if you're managing third party funds, you need to have an external custodian. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that that's great with, with the security. Um, the thing that was really good about this one was we had the, we had multi chain or it was on chain, and what, what that really means is baked into that protocol was you could effectively have an account which was controlled by other accounts, more than one account. So you could have like three out of five signatures to move any funds around. So what you got with that was zero chance of being hacked, right? So you'd if you had three out of five, you'd have to have the private keys from three different accounts stolen. The people could be in diff- completely different places. The files aren't going to be in the same places. It's pretty, pretty tough to do. So that sort of works. That w- it's very robust um, as a system. In terms of symbol, really, all of the base level features that we had on this one, we, we brought over. This other one was interesting is, is namespaces. So it's like uh, an internet alias. So it's sort of like, you know, like copper.com or something. You know, the ability to actually, rather than um, have a really complicated address, right? You, know, you want something to, that's actually quite simple mm-hmm. uh, to recognize. So those features are there. I think the other thing, you know, we, that's really important with Symbol is, um, you know, we, we just took another step forward. It was very easy to tokenize assets on on, on this one. Um, on the new chain, we just got more of a feature set that, again, in a regulated environment, if you're going to do security tokens or basically put a lot of assets on chain, you actually have to build an extra feature mm-hmm. and to handle that because actually the regulatory structure is not going to change. Um, the, you know, the regulatory structure for securities is there for a reason. Um, so really, in terms of that digitalization has got to cope 
with hitting that regulatory uh, friction, you know, like the KYCAML, really important. Um, you know, locking tokens, you know, periods where they're locked up, really important. Whitelist controlling, you know, whether someone's retail or someone's accredited investor, really important. Um, so, you know, that, that having that functionality and being able to, to, to do that, uh, you know, is really important and you need to have that natively within your, within your chain. And there aren't many protocols that do. So, well, yeah, I mean, it, there's obviously other people that, you know, uh, are focused on this. And I think the other thing for the industry, um, you know, if you fast forward five years, right, there's going to be common standards. Now, there are some working groups and mm. there's some common standards, but we haven't really got to the point where, you know, we've got ERC-20 as a token standard, um, which has been great in a way because you've seen a lot of different tokens. You've got a lot of experimentation on that token standard. But even people that are hardcore Ethereum developers, um, you know, accept that there's better versions than ERC-20 that they can do. So, you know, uh, and certainly the security tokens is a completely different level at all because mm -hmm. it's more like uh, a non-fungible token rather than a fungible token. Um, so, you know, that's that, that's what you've, you know, you could, we're going we're gonna to get there eventually where everyone's going to say, look. What um, do you think will be the next um, standard that comes out or is just widely adopted? Do you think it'll be around CBDCs, for example? Or? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean, I just think there'll be, I think there'll be, the, the point we're going to get to is where there's interoperability in the sense of, I think, you're just going to be able to move tokens across the chain. So this is why I think there's going to be a multi-blockchain world, world, right? I don't think there's going to be one network that, you know, that rules the world. Um, I think the reality is you're going to have lots of, you're actually going to probably have the existing uh, payment rails, mm -hmm. like Visa networks or whatever. You're going to, but they're going to connect up with the crypto uh, networks. So I won't call them crypto networks, like the blockchain networks. Um, and, and then effectively you're going to have some networks that are really good for certain use cases. Um, and then other networks are really good for other use cases. And, and, and I don't think you're going to get a situation where, you know, you're going to get one network mm. you know, because there's not going to be a perfect network. Do you think this uh, interoperability sort of makes the argument for DeFi, which is this year's sort of, I don't know, catchphrase, flash word? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think the value, I think the value of, I think the value of DeFi um, has been the experimentation and also, it's sort of proved a little bit that you don't need the centralized entities in terms of the exchanges, hundred percent, right? So, um, if if you think about really, you know, like custody, self custody of assets, right? And it's sort of that's for a security point of view, that's sort of really important if you can do it in a safe way. Um, if you think about the idea of dexes, decentralized exchanges, actually with self custody, it's really quite, you know, quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite different to how the regulated markets at the moment are structured. Um, but I suppose in some ways, you know, we've got um, dark pools or, or exchanges that are quite different. Do you think it's too um, different from the way things work now that it's almost um, too difficult for regulators to build a framework for it, to incorporate it, and it's easier just to say, no, you can't do that anymore? I, I mean, I, I, mean I, th I, th I mean, I think there's a few things that, that anyone working in, you know, digital assets um, has to, well, I think anyone in digital assets should basically read, well, either listen to regulators or actually read the rule books, right? So there's a few things I think are really important um, around KYC, AML, right? Mm -hmm. That's the base level, right? So, um, but I also think, you know, like this, here's a, you know, here's a really good example. So, so I'd say securities is probably one of the most regulated spaces, right? Have any of these asset classes. Um, so one of the companies we've just integrated, NEM um, Symbol, 
has been ProPine, which is a, a Singaporean securities token um, exchange. Um, now, what's interesting about them, they came straight out of the Sing- um, Singapore regulator's sandbox. Mm-hmm. So they've gone through a whole process where they've built a product that's fully compliant from a custody point of view and an issuance point of view um, with the regulation. Um, and actually, we've got a fund that's been tokenized on that. Um, and, and, and that's a really good example. Like, okay, you're working, it's a highly regulated space, but the regulator's been prepared to, to open up a sandbox and pull a company through that and allow a company to build a product that's fully compliant. And actually, it's going to go to a point where it's issuing live deals, live securities are being issued on the, the platform, um, which is great. So it sort of shows that actually you can build product in a regula- regulated environment, but you've got to put the work in. Um, and well, so it's, it's first yeah. steps, it's early days, it's early doors, but it's moving in the right direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think the, the, the some of the regulatory stuff is, is, is really, it's been really good lately. Um, I think if, <laughs> there's some really topical stuff going well, on. Well, I mean, well. it's really, look, it's been really interesting. I think the biggest thing about Libra um, was it actually forced regulators to really think about what was going on with stable coins. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly, you know, they're having a really good look at stable coins. Um, then they're thinking about digital currency because they're realizing, you know, digital euro because it's about digitalization. So Europe doesn't want to be left behind. So hence all the digital euro um, uh, uh, paper that got got yep. leaked is out there. You're talking about a digital dollar. Okay, we're not going to have a digital dollar before some of the other major mm-hmm. currencies. But the fact is at least the, the latest stuff out of uh, the regulators in the States is really interesting where they're talking about the value of blockchain networks, the value of having... Um, you know, decentralization and not having situations where, you know, uh, a bank blows up and nearly brings down the whole financial system. So people are actually talking about benefits mm. of these networks. So I think, I think, I think it's really good. I mean, I, I think, I think you just got to be, I think people have just got to take a step back and realize that if you want a financial product has a massive in, in, input into everyone's lives, right? Whether it's insurance, banking, payments, all these sort of stuff. And, you know, it's always going to be uh, highly regulated. Um, you just you just got to work with regulators to, this, to the extent where they understand the f- how, what you're trying to innovate in. And, um, you know, okay, that people are going to push the, bar- the, the barriers. But, you know, there's, there's you know, uh, I think Ave was a recent one. It's just mm-hmm. got a, um, e-money license, right? I mean, so, you know, that's a, you know, that's a great and really interesting DeFi project. That, that, is, that has gone the regulatory route. You know, at least they've obviously engaged with regulators. They've gone through the processes. So I, mean, I think it's I think it's exciting. And I think you can do it. I think it's a very positive note. I, I like to end on a positive note. Mm. Um, it's been very good having you in to chat this afternoon. Mm. Um, we've got a few questions that we ask everyone, okay. if you don't mind running through them with me. Um, where do you see the crypto industry in one year versus 10 years? Um, I think, I think, I mean, I think again, we're on a, we're sort of an adoption curve so it's that S curve. So it's so basically, it's it's sort of it's, it seems too slow for a lot of people, um, but the acceleration is really going to happen. So um, so yeah, basically, it's massive in ten years. It's going to really surprise people. But but for a lot of us in the industry, in twelve months, we're probably thinking, oh, it's not it's not going fast enough. Yeah, you know, I think that every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, if you could change one thing about our industry, what would you change? Um, I think I think maybe some of Maybe some of the hype, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think one of the things that was really good about having a sort of bear market where there were a chunk of people that basically just built product and actually like, you know, our, you know, our guys, the core developers, right. Who, 
as far as I can see, work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, you know, building this product. And they just got on with doing that. Yeah. Um, and in a way, they're immune to that hype. They just just build, build, build. Yeah. And I think that's the thing about the, the, the product now. There's a load of stuff that's really good that's been built. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, in your own life, what is one piece of technology you couldn't live without? Um, uh, I, th- I think my uh, children's uh, video games, because uh, there'll be a problem in the house if they didn't get access. Well, I, was, I thought you meant when they go to sleep, you get to play with them. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'd like to, although they don't want to go to sleep very often. <laughs> okay, uh, what does your weekend look like? Uh, what do you do when you get time off? Yeah, um, well, I live, I live in the country, right? The middle of the country is really rural, so, um, so you sort of walk the dog. Um, do the sports of the children and stuff. They play a lot of sports, so watch them do sports. Uh, I like to say I, I run around with them as well, but actually they're way too fast for me now. So, uh, yeah. This sounds very wholesome though. I like this. Let's move to the country. Yeah, it's, look, it's, a, it's a different lifestyle. It's nice to have a break from London, like, uh, yeah. you know, to the sort of, otherwise this, this stuff with the, you know, technology stuff is just 24 seven. Yeah, it's hard to turn uh, yeah. off, I guess. Um, do you have a movie that you could watch over and over again and never get tired of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I think some of the, I mean, things like the, things like the, the Godfather series, right? Um, Classics. Like, I don't know how many times I've seen them, but it's a lot, but every time I always watch the whole film and they're really long. Yeah. It's really so like Redemption. It's on TV. You just have to watch it, right? <laughs> a classic like that. Yeah. Um, do you have any catchphrases you live by or mottos? Um, yeah, I think, I think uh, just... Just like be to be trying to be positive, I think um, I think you I think I realised as I get older, you know, like it's really easy to criticise stuff. Mm. Like it's the glass half full, half empty, and I, and I think really, um, you know, you're never going to get the perfect result first time, but you know, you put enough work into something, then you'll get a better product. Excellent. Um, who should we all follow on Twitter? Oh, I mean, there's just so much on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm not um, like I'm one. Of, I look at it and I, and I guess I'm a maybe, uh, I tend to be quite, um, don't follow cults and don't get obsessed by people. So, so, um, I, I, and I can laugh, I, I follow Donald Trump and I can laugh about it. Yeah. Um, because obviously I'm not a US voter. So yeah, I just think you just, I just think you need to always listen to a range of opinion and never cut yourself off from different viewpoints. Cause I mean, my, you know, I've changed my views about lots of things, even in this industry over the last 18 months. Yeah. So it's pretty know, easy to fall yeah. into a, yeah. an echo chamber on social yeah. media. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, what was the last thing that surprised you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think, I mean, obviously the, this year has just been the, it's been the, you know, the COVID, right? Yeah, one after another. I, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, the thing is when I was younger and, you know, we, we did, we did a load of risk analysis, you know, and for trading room positions, you had all these scenarios. So we always used to have like a, um, Iran, uh, Iran, a strike on Iran's nuclear activity. You know, so all of these uh, scenarios and we played it out on the stuff, you know, but the thing about the COVID, it was just such global, you know, global play pandemic thing. It was such a hard one to to really see that ahead you got a slight inkling when it started to move in february but i mean it's crazy how it's changed yeah. our lives and it's going to define our lives now for, uh, personally i think for the next 10 years because of the debt build up yeah absolutely. so it's uh, yeah it's huge well, that's ending on a bit of a negative yeah. note we need to change that uh okay yeah. <laughs> who, who's the next guest we should have on our podcast who can you recommend to us who should we talk to um i'll make it easier you can say dead or alive <laughs> I got to think of someone really positive now, haven't I? That's the <laughs> yeah. problem.
Yeah. It's, it's no t- serial killers, please. No, it's, t- it's tough because like, a lot of the really interesting people, like, uh, I think you should get a, like a, a futologist or someone. Mm-hmm. Some, someone. I think what you want to do is you want to find someone who, who's got a really positive view of the future rather than just like, like for example, the environment, right? There's, it's very easy to be really negative about the environment. And, and, you know, like myself, for example, you know, I'm vegetarian, right? Um, you know, I've got a Tesla, you know, so I just think there's loads of actions individually we, we can do. And in, if individually, individually, everyone changes their behavior and, and, and their, their, what they buy and they purchase and how they live their lives, we c- and also technology as well, we could have a lot more positive outcome. And it would be probably nice to get a futurologist who... It sounds like you're suggesting yeah. we should have David Attenborough on the program, well, you know, which I'm... Yeah. Totally up for. You know, so but, if anyone's but, listening and knows David, just put in a good but word. You know, it's, look, it's, 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 it's the, you know, for our children, I think it's probably the single biggest issue that is going to confront, you know, their lifetimes. Um, but I, I don't think it's, I think it's something that's solvable. People can solve it, but it does require some effort and some work. Yeah, a mass, it requires <laughs> individuals, right? It's going to yeah. come from individuals, not from top down. Well, it starts here. Yeah. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Ian's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on our social channels like Twitter at CopperHQ or you can find it on our website at copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure you give us a good review on whichever streaming platform you're using. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter. That's at CryptoTSK. Or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. The show's only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown, with support from Tally Spear, Maylee Mountfort, and Eva Leela. New episodes come out fortnightly-ish. Uh, And in the meantime, stay safe.